Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Adam Frankel when he was a young speechwriter for the Obama for President campaign in 2007, and then later as a member of the White House speechwriting team. I had no idea that he was going through an extraordinary personal trauma at the time. He's now written a book called The Survivors, a story of war, inheritance, and healing. Uh, Just a searing book that I would highly recommend. I sat down with Adam some time back to talk about the book and the story that he tells. Here's that conversation. Adam Frankel, my colleague and friend, it's great to Great to see you on the occasion of the publication of your new book, The Survivors, A Story of War, Inheritance, and Healing. And I want to get to it, but really at the core of it is your own story and your family's story. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. Always good to see you. You too. Um, So I grew up with two very different sets of grandparents, um, different models, different experiences on my mom's side. My grandparents uh, were Holocaust survivors. My mother's father, who I always called Zeta, was at a number of Nazi camps, ending the war at Dachau. My grandmother, who I always called Bubby, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, lived for much of the war in the woods of Eastern Europe. Uh, Her brothers were were, uh, fighters, and she was with partisans and Jewish resistance fighters. You know, this book, which I think is riveting, by the way, is it's a book of discovery and a discovery of secrets that families often have who've gone through these traumas and a story. It's a story of intergenerational secrets and burdens. One of the stories you tell that is incredibly moving and, and striking is the story of your grandmother hiding from Nazis. Yeah. And the lengths she had to go to survive and to protect the others around her, share that. Yeah, you know, my grandfather um, passed away in his early 90s, and I got to talk to him a lot about the war by then. My grandmother passed away much earlier, and her health began to decline before she did. And so I don't have a lot of memories of conversations with her and all. She didn't talk about it much, but she did share some things. I think the experience was so traumatic for her that she kept mm-hmm. it all to herself, didn't even talk to her husband, my grandfather, about it much. But what she did share was, and uh, I remember her telling me of hiding as an adolescent girl in the walls of her home while the Nazis stuck bayonets into the walls looking for her, uh, of looking through some of those holes into the attic as the Nazis walked up to the attic uh, looking for her. I remember her telling me about... Um, the bunker and hearing the story from other family members who, when the Nazis came to liquidate their ghetto, 
um, one of her brothers built a, who was a former Polish army veteran, built a bunker in the, their backyard, beneath their backyard. And the whole family went in there. My grandmother, her, her three sisters, two sisters had families of their own who came in, the two brothers, one of whom had, an, had a child of, the, of his own, the parents, cousin. It was, a, it was this large space, or, or, or probably not that large, but a lot of people squeezed into it. I heard these stories. Uh, there were a couple of children in there, and one of the babies in the bunker started to cry. Uh, and the babies started to cry as they knew that Nazis were walking over them on the, on the grass in the backyard. And I would hear this story sort of from time to time in childhood, um, and the, the, the people would say it in soft tones. Um, they'd have a pale look on their face. Um, and my grandmother was, must have been sitting a foot or two away when she saw her, her aunt um, had smother her own child. This is this would have been her niece um, to save the whole family. Uh, and these and, and they they fled the bunker. My my grandmother was who was an adolescent girl was taken with her brothers to the woods, um, and the rest of her family was killed. Uh, her parents were murdered. Her sisters, w- along with um, some of their own families. I remember when I was a kid uh, asking one of the com- few conversations I had with her. I remember asking her about her younger sister at the time anything. I said, what was, what was she like? And my grandmother just started tearing up uh, at the question. And she said, you know, I don't, I don't even remember, I don't remember the sound of her voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, you know, you don't see your grandparents cry uh, uh, very often. And it was very moving. And, and that, it was just one example of the way the trauma stayed with her. When, when I was a kid, I'd wake up early and go and uh, when I was staying with them, and she'd already be in the kitchen making me freshly squeezed orange juice. And I thought, oh, she loves me so much. She wakes up early to make me orange juice. And the truth is she never slept through the night, even then, uh, because the nightmares kept her awake. Yeah. You know, there are so many different ways to talk about the monstrosity of the Holocaust. I can't think of a more horrific example than the thought of a mother having to smother her own child. That is, um, that is so, so fundamentally uh, disturbing and uh, un- unfathomable. unfathomable. I mean, you, you know, I, I've, in my own life, I've seen, in my own family, I've seen the power of a mother's love for a child. The instinct of a mother is to do everything yes. she can to save yes. a child and to have to 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 kill your own child uh, and they didn't talk about it the whole family didn't i know that it, not until many years later i mean they, they went on and had other children after the war those two parents survived and um, at least one of their sons didn't know until he was much older that, that he had an older sibling because it was such a I, I, I can't even imagine, um, but but nobody nobody spoke of it for many years. Now, among the other secrets, and one that I don't think you ever got a full explanation for, is that your grandparents are not Abraham and Leah. Is it? Yeah, that wasn't their name. Yes. Yeah. My, so. Uh, my mother's name, Ellen Parisman. My middle name is Parisman. This is the name that my family has. It was the name of my grandfather's store in New Haven, Parisman Jewelers. It was the name on all of government identification, passports, you know, driver's licenses. Not our name. You know, like many other families who came to this country, the uh, names changed. But often those names were changed by the authorities at the border who couldn't 
pronounce the name That's or right. didn't spell right. it right. This was an intentional. You, the, their name was Guberski, Guber, right? Yes. No, that's right. And that's uh, right. So they chose. They made an intentional choice to create new identities for themselves. They did. They did. You know. And this was another one of those secrets where nobody in the family would talk about it. You know, we knew it. The the, the immediate family knew it, but we weren't supposed to talk about it. I once got a call uh, when I was a kid. From, uh, and I picked up the phone in our apartment, and it was somebody who'd seen our name in the phone book uh, and was calling up because there aren't a lot of Parismans out there, and he thought we must be related. And I said, Mom, there's a Parisman here. And she was, hang up, hang up the phone. You know, we we're very afraid that we'd sort of reveal this secret. The truth uh, is still unclear to me. I asked my grandfather about this a number of times. What I can best put together is that in a uh, refugee camp in post-war Germany, he was running some contraband to make some extra money, and the West German police were after him, and there was an arrest warrant out for him. And he was afraid that he would not be able to immigrate to the United States if there were an arrest warrant out for him. I see. And so he bought somebody's or stole, or I don't know exactly what happened. He was always very shady with the details, and he was terrified that this would come to light, I think, because... German reparations were on the line. And there was an investigation, which I uncovered when I started poking around in the archives at Yad Vashem. Uh, There was an investigation by the Red Cross and other agencies in the 1960s because there were multiple people using the name Abraham Peretzman (laughs) floating around, and he was one of them. Yeah. Yad Vashem, the Holocaust memorial in Israel. Your mom, Ellen, She's struggled with mental illness throughout her life, but starting in childhood, she attempted suicide when she was in college, you write. In this story of intergenerational burden, how much of this secret keeping and this unaddressed traumas from the past, how much do you think that visited on her? Yeah, you know, look, you can't draw a straight line. It's not one-to-one, but... It defies everything I know about my mother and her experience and her life and everything I know about my family and her parents and what they went through to think the things are unrelated. And we we know now more uh, than we've ever known about intergenerational trauma, the science of intergenerational trauma. Um, I interview for my book a woman named Rachel Yehuda at Mount Sinai who's done groundbreaking work in epigenetics, which is an emerging science. And what she has shown is that children of Holocaust survivors are three times as likely to display PTSD or other symptoms as demographically similar Jews who are not children of survivors. She's shown that um, children of women who are pregnant at or near ground zero on 9-11 have similarly low levels of cortisol, which are associated with PTSD, a stress hormone, uh, as their mothers. And so we know that trauma can have a genetic impact from one generation to another. We don't know how exactly it's passed on, um, but we know it can. And we also know from other research that the way that parents respond, that Holocaust survivors respond as parents to their experience, do they participate in a conspiracy of silence? Do they display uh, intense intra-family anger, other sorts of behaviors, that these sorts of things can also contribute to mental health issues among among their children? And so that, going back and 
uh, understanding that, learning that science, and learning more about those relationships and the research there sort of helped me understand a little bit about how my mother, um, about some of my mother's struggles. You wrote about visiting when you were a child, and I want to get to your the Frankel side of the family here, but you wrote about traveling with your mother, and you visited Dachau, and she had a really uh, emotional reaction to that on the, I guess, on the way home, and yeah. which does suggest that there's a relationship between uh, all of this. Yeah, when you gr- look, when you grow up in one of these families, and I, uh, survivor families, I'm removed from it. I'm third generation, but it was far more intense for second generation survivors. You grew up with these stories, with the terror, all of it. These are your bedtime stories in many ca- in many families, at least those that talk about it. And it was a very visceral uh, experience for my mother, especially. Um, but yeah, we went we went to Dachau on that visit. What we didn't know at that time, none one, no one in our family knew until I started doing research for the book, was that my grandfather was not at the main Dachau site where we visited, where there's a memorial, but rather at one of the twelve Kofring subcamps, which were actually in Steven Spielberg's Band of Brothers, the sites that are uh, camps that were liberated by Easy Company. Uh, he was at one of those as a slave laborer re-imported from outside the Reich uh, to work on a secret project personally approved by Hitler to move the German aviation industry underground where it could withstand mm-hmm. Allied bombing. And I had gone back to Dachau after that. I've tried to, you know, tried best as I could to to understand, even in small ways, a, a little bit about his experience. The Frankels are a completely different sort of story. Talk about your dad's family. Yeah, the Frankels, my dad's parents, Stan and Irene Frankel, who I was very close to. My grandfather uh, was a part-time speechwriter. How did his? How did the Frankels get here? They came earlier. They obviously. came much earlier. They were, you know, look, my mother's parents came after the war, thick Yiddish accent, spoke five, six languages, you know. On the other side, assimilated Jews, been here much longer since the uh, late 19th century. And... Uh, Stan from the Midwest, Dayton, Ohio, uh, went to Northway, met at Northwestern, sweethearts at Northwestern. My grandmother sent him, you know, 1,200 handwritten letters from the beginning of the war to the end. He was stationed, uh, he was overseas, an infantry officer in the South Pacific during the war. And a part-time speechwriter after the war for folks from Adlai Stevenson to Humphrey to McGovern. I joked after the Kerry campaign that I was upholding the proud Frankel family tradition of working for losing Democrats. <laughs> um, and I I got my political bug from my grandfather. I wanted to be a speechwriter because of my grandfather. Um, my grandmother, who I was also very close to, Irene, was from Chicago. Her sister, Josephine Baskin, um, a wonderful woman, also uh, went to Northwestern I, and I later, her well. and, as you do, and, and married Newton Minow, yes. um, who served as chairman of the FCC. A legend. A legend, absolutely. 34 uh, years old, he, he became head of the FCC. One of the great Axe Files conversations I ever had was with Newt Minow. Incred- incredible man. And, so, and Newt and my grandfather were very close and collaborators in politics. And so I grew up sort of wanting to follow in that family's political footsteps. Yeah, and your dad, he had a law degree, but he was involved in government as well. Absolutely. He worked in Robert Kennedy's Senate office and you know volunteered on various campaigns before entering the UN system. And you used to take field trips with him down to Washington. And very few father-son stories relate to looking in the newspaper and trying to find the most interesting congressional hearing that day. But that's what you guys that's did. That's what we did. That's what oh. we did. The two of us would just go to D.C. We'd go to some hearings. We'd have our faces buried in 
tomes about American history, and uh, you know, and we we loved every minute of it. Yeah, you said the Parismans are who I thought I was. The Frankels were who I wanted to be. Yeah, yeah, and and I think this book uh, and the process of writing it and and reflecting on the journey that I write about has helped me kind of grapple with that. I mean, I think that the I'm I'm profoundly grateful for a lot that I get from my Parisman family, but there's there's also a mix. It's a complicated legacy that the Holocaust has left with our family. And it, it was a uh, cleaner story uh, with the Frankel side. It was, it was unambiguous love and hope and uplift um, and something and that was- mission. Yeah. And mission and something that was easier for a, a young kid and adolescent to want to aspire to be. Your parents were divorced when you, they met uh, at uh, City University of New York. Uh, they were divorced when you were four years old. You were an only child. And from that point on, you had a very complicated relationship with your mother, in part because of her own struggles. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's strange how we look back on our histories and, and our own past because um, some memories were buried and came to me only as I started reconstructing my past over the course of working on this book and over the and reflecting on on my life in recent years but yeah my mother my mother struggled with depression um, uh, for most of her life before I was born she was hospitalized for a suicide attempt when I was young she would uh, um, shut lock herself I didn't lock herself put go into her room and shut the door and I mean, I have memories from when I was very young, going up to the keyhole and kind of peering in and wondering, what's she, what's she doing in there? I'm kind of, you know, I'm an only child out here. I'm just sort of, what's going on? But it became the pattern. It became the routine. And so, you know, and that was, those memories now fill me with sadness for her and, and, and that experience. I can speak from my own family's experience. My mother had her own struggles. My parents were also divorced. And more on my sister, who was older than me, she found herself in the odd role of sort of both being the child and the parent. And it felt like that's exactly what you experienced. Yeah, I think, you know, I think maybe partly because I'm an uh, only child and just by temperament or personality or or whatever, I I definitely felt that I was the emotional anchor, that I was the source of her emotional and psychological equilibrium and part of my job was to help maintain it. Um, that was my sense. That was a sense I think that was reinforced by the family, you know, that my job was to just make sure she's okay. Uh, you know, if she's upset about something or wants me to do something, always do it. Just make sure she's, you know. She's uh, a, she was a professional. Absolutely. A very, an accomplished professional, brilliant woman and wide-ranging interests and passions and worldly. And she, she taught me a lot and she exposed me to a lot. And um, she also had demons that she wrestled with. Yeah. You went to Princeton, which was, your, I guess, your dad's alma mater. And, and you knew that you wanted to be part of this world of, of politics and, and, uh, and government. And a pivotal figure in your life was someone who, as a child, was sort of a heroic figure to me, Ted Sorensen, who was uh, such an enormous figure in the Kennedy story, the John F. Kennedy story, he was really his sort of intellectual alter ego and uh, had the pen on many of Kennedy's great uh, speeches. First of all, 
you got an autographed picture of Ted Sorensen for your bar mitzvah. I mean, really? Yeah, I'm telling you, man. I'm, I'm like, this is what I mean. I was the only guy I know who grew up wanting to be a speechwriter. Uh, I was just kind of in the air with the Frankel family. But in I, fact, we should point out you also uh, were a baseball guy. That's true. You mean that's you? True. You also rode away to the. Heirs of uh, of shoeless <laughs> yes, Joe Jackson, yes. the yeah. disgraced Chicago White Sox outfielder who was part of the Black Sox right. scandal. Right. So it wasn't just about speech That's writing, right. but I, right. I would venture to say you were probably the only kid in America who got a Ted Sorensen autograph photo for your That's bar That's probably mitzvah. right. That's probably right. And you went to work uh, for him. I did when I was a junior in college. Uh, I, we linked up thanks to my Minnow family uh, who introduced us and. He needed a research assistant on his memoirs. He had just had a stroke. The historian who was going to help him had left him on the project, and he was feeling discouraged. He met me, this you know college junior who was in total awe of him and thought, I can put this guy to work. Uh, and he was right, and he did. And so uh, for six years, um, I worked very, very closely with him on his memoirs. Uh, as, you know, helping him initially with research and the outline and then ultimately um, helping him construct it because, because he, he, he had, um, had very difficult, uh, a difficult time seeing, uh, what he would do is he would dictate notes, um, which he could see under the right conditions of light and angling the notes, and we'd get the transcripts and I'd clean them up, and then we'd kind of go back and forth until they resembled chapters. Um, and he was an ex- just an extraordinary guy who taught me so much. I mean, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about because I can attest to the fact that you are a brilliant writer. Anybody who reads this book will see that. But I got the treat of having the experience of reading your copy for several years when you were working for President Obama. Something we'll get to. And I'm wondering how much did you learn at the foot of the master? Yeah, he really is the master. I mean. I'd say a couple of things. One, one thing I learned, wholly apart from writing, is, as you know well, the whole ethic, ethos of the new frontier was public service is a noble calling, yes. a noble profession, an idea that is, is not in currency. Uh, no, I know, days. but it's important to remember. It is important. I think we've actually seen an example of that in the testimony of these career public servants Absolutely. during this impeachment scandal, who to a person have been... Deeply, deeply impressive. Absolutely. And they're modeling that. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that I absorbed from Ted, who, who believed that with all every fiber in his being. Um, but I tried to absorb as much as I could about writing. I mean, I think in a way he had a similar approach to speech writing as I think uh, President Obama did. And I don't think that's a surprise because they're both lawyers. And so they both thought uh, and wrote um, uh, in a sort of legally trained way. What I mean by that is structure is very important. Yes. Uh, and so they would outline things. They'd think in terms of what's the first point? What's the second point? You know, exactly. this is something people exactly. don't really understand. Barack Obama could, and I think you noted this, he could go on for pages of a speech without what you would consider an applause line because he viewed them as arguments with a beginning, a middle, and an end that built on itself. And, I mean, the language was beautiful. And he also had this lyrical sort of ear and musical ear and how the words interplayed and so on. But, you know, one of the things that passes for speech writing today is the stringing together of an amalgam of applause lines. And it's almost always unsatisfying at the end. Yes. And that's the difference between a great speech and a an ordinary speech. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's not like Ted and JFK sat around 
before the Kennedy inaugural saying, what would be a great soundbite for this inaugural? Ask not. You know, yes. they, they, they were focused on writing uh, an argument and, and making his case about ideals that he believed in, what he was going to do for the country. And so I, I absorbed that way of speech writing. How do you tell a story but tell it in the form of an argument? And that was really, I think, the overwhelmingly the most important lesson about speech writing I learned. And you employed it as a young speechwriter in the John Kerry campaign in 2004, as you pointed out earlier, where you worked with another young speechwriter named John Favreau. And that turned out to be a fateful association. It did. Yeah, no, Favs. Uh, I still remember uh, showing up for my interview on that campaign, which, you know, true to form, uh, you know, I was uh, in my very early 20s, uh, came in a a double-breasted wool suit. (laughs) You know, what do I know about presidential campaigns? Favs, meanwhile, I'm going there. Favs' feet are up on the desk. He's wearing jeans and, you know, like a uh, polo shirt. That was the vibe. Yeah, that was the vibe. I was like, I think I need to informalize this a little bit. Um, but we became very good, very good friends, and um, both part of that small speechwriting team. All, actually, actually, another member of that team would be um, Sarah Hurwitz, who would yes, later join the Obama right. world. Um, and after Kerry lost, uh, Favs went on to work for Obama in the Senate, and I came back to New York uh, to help Ted on his memoir. But we stayed in touch, and around the time that uh, Obama was, there was all that news about will he run, won't he run. Yes, uh, I let Favs know. Uh, I will do anything I can to help him in any one way or another. And uh, and he uh, he called me up in 2007 and said, Gibbs gave me a little money to hire a deputy. You want to move to Chicago? And I yeah. said, absolutely. Yeah. What are your reflections on that experience? Because it was sort of a singular, at least in the modern era. I remember sitting down with Obama when he was thinking about it, saying, we really haven't had a great idealistic campaign since Bobby Kennedy, you know, in, in the six, and, and he was too young to remember that. And I said, you know, where we really sort of inspire people to believe that we could change the world. Yeah. And that's the great opportunity here. And that was really the vibe of that campaign. That was, I think he communicated that. I think everybody in the campaign felt that. We did, and I've heard you describe it as a Frank Capra film in some ways. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's, I mean, mm-hmm. it was... I, it was look. I, it was everything you want a presidential campaign to be. I've heard Obama describe people he admires as so and so as you want them to be. That campaign was what you want. A pre- it yeah. was hopeful. It was idealistic. It was inspirational. We didn't want to let the candidate down. I mean, I remember the last thing I wanted to do was disappoint Barack Obama. I was trying my best to do the best job I could for Barack Obama because I believed in him so much, and I wanted to write speeches that could inspire people to believe in him as much as I did. And he gave us so much to work with. I mean, that was the amazing thing. I mean, the, the speeches he'd written, but Dreams from My Father. I mean, who has written a book right. so far bef- long before and then runs for president can actually stand by a lot of that. But we borrowed a lot of, a lot of what he'd written there for speeches. His convention speech from 2004. 2000, exactly, exactly. Was a, yeah, well, I'm thankful every day for the experience of having been involved in that and the administration. And I'm thankful in part because I had a chance to work with all you guys That was was an absolute highlight of the whole experience. The wordsmith, as I like to call you, when we got to the White House, oftentimes you were the guy who wrote the memorial speeches, the, you know, these big auditory kind of speeches, and you were steeped in history. Why do you think it is that you fell into that sort of, oh, some prominent American just passed away called (laughs) Frankel? 
You know, I, I think we all did our, as you say, we all did our share of policy speeches. Mm-hmm. We did, you know, our share of political stuff. But no, that's absolutely right. I gravitated toward ones, I think, that um, required some sort of moral language, some sort of sense of history. And I think part of that is uh, goes to the my, my family background on the Frankel side, steeped in history and, 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 and public service. And on my mom's side, the war experience, which I from uh, and the Holocaust experience, which one of the things I think it instilled in me was um, this sense of right and wrong, and we need to fight for what's right, and we, you know, if something's um, wrong, we need to we need to um, stand up and say so. And so there is sort of a moral language there that I um, gravitated toward, um, and those were the certainly speeches I uh, enjoyed working on the most, and. You know, uh, Obama was often very involved in a lot of those speeches. I always viewed the process. I mean, we would meet and we'd discuss as a team the speeches that had to get done, and we kicked around our thoughts. And everybody, I think, from the perspective of, you know, I mean, I had some strategic imperatives, but also are we reflecting the president's values? Are we reflecting his way of thinking? But uh, I always felt like no matter how well you guys did with these speeches and no matter how well the product came out, we always were just trying to place this unpolished gem in front of him and then he would take it to a whole different level. Yeah, you, we just want to get in the ballpark for him. Because the worst thing would be to get back the draft with no edits that says, let's discuss, you know? Yes. Um, we wanted to get it to a place where he could make his line edits. And in, invariably, he'd improve it. We, I'd look forward to his edits because there would always be turns of phrase, ways of saying things that I thought were just so original. And I, I never would have thought of, of, of putting it. Um, so it was a great, just as a writer, um, it was a great experience. And, and by the way, u- unique almost for modern American uh, political speechwriters because you know, we've talked to a lot of other presidential speechwriters who did not have that experience with their presidents. They, they may have loved their presidents and wanted to do everything they could um, to support them, but they weren't getting, uh, in many cases, didn't have close relationships or collaborations with those presidents. Peggy Noonan has written about barely seeing Reagan. And so uh, we really benefited from the fact that President Obama was such an extraordinary writer himself. Yeah, and, and sometimes they would be lying at it. Sometimes he would, you'd get back yellow legal pads of, of copiously written out passages, sometimes could go on for pages that he, he'd yeah. want to insert here or... Yeah, and, and structural changes. I mean, that's the thing that because he was and is such a great writer, he would just fix it himself often, unless it required so much work he decided we needed to take another cut to get it, to try and get it in the ballpark. Um, but yes, that's right. He would sometimes, he'd read through it, and if he thought it required a significant amount of work, just write it out longhand, sometimes incorporating some material from that initial draft, revising it, reworking it, getting it back to us, and then we'd go back and forth until it was there. Now a word from our sponsors, then we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I didn't know until I read this book that you were going through a tremendous trauma while you were working at the White House. I, I have to tell you now that I'm sad that I didn't. I'm sad that I couldn't have been more help to you at the time. But you made a discovery in search of trying to understand the burdens that your family faced. 
that changed your life. Talk about that. Yeah, well, first, thanks for saying that. I mean, I, I certainly would have spared myself a lot of heartache uh, if I had opened up about it to you and, and others uh, on the campaign in the White House. It, it turns out if you want to not deal with intense personal issues, joining a presidential campaign <laughs> or working in the White House is a very convenient yes, way. Yes, that's, that's absolutely avoid, <laughs> true. I'm sure it. that's true. Um, so shortly before joining the Obama campaign in 2007, um, I learned that my dad is not my biological father. And nobody came out and told me. Um, I just started asking some questions fairly innocuously of my mother when I was living at home after the Kerry campaign, you know, asking, why did you and dad split up? And quickly realizing that the answers didn't add up, that she was giving me different answers than my dad was giving me. Um, you know, she'd say, well, uh, you know, I never really wanted to marry your dad. And uh, then I went to my dad. I said, why did you guys why did you guys split up? And my dad said, oh, well, your mom had an affair with Jason. Um, Jason Black, as I call him in the yeah, book. Not, not his real name. Not his real name. Um, and, uh, and so I, I was stunned. I mean, I've known Jason all my life uh, He's a, as a family friend. Uh, we vacationed together. At the Democratic National Convention in um, the year 2000 in L.A., I stayed with my half-sister without either uh, uh, but you didn't ahead. know. But I'm getting you, ahead. Yeah, I, right. stayed, I stayed with Jason's daughter. Right. I stayed with Jason's daughter. Um, I, va- I uh, stayed with his mother uh, on another trip uh, to L.A. when I was young. So we'd vacation. We'd known each other. They treated you almost as if you were family. They treated us as we were family friends. We were, you know, mm-hmm. uh, very, very close family friends, you know. And um, uh, when my father told me this, I went back to my mother. I said, uh, you know, Dad said that you had an affair with Jason. Uh, and... Um, I, I should note in that initial conversation with my dad, um, I said immediately when he said this to me, uh, I said, how do you know I'm, I'm your son? Which in retrospect might suggest that uh, I had some doubts uh, mm-hmm. that were latent, but he dismissed them outright and very quickly brushed it off. He said, oh, no, 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 you're my son. You did say that you wondered at times why you bore no resemblance yes. to your dad. I did occasionally throughout adolescence. Uh, I, would, I would have these doubts and they would pass through my head, go up to the mirror, kind of look at myself and, and then, then I'd, you know, push it off to the side and not focus on it. Uh, and there were other things, you know, uh, I, weird things that would come back later at, at dinner table conversations with my mother where I might ask about my parents' relationship. And my, I remember my mother at one point saying, um, oh, no, 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 I can't tell you about that. You're too young. You're too young. And I just moved on. And, and again, it just moved on, moved on years past, and I, never, I didn't think about it. And then I, so I took this information about this, this affair back to my mother, and I said, well, when did the affair begin? After I was born? And my mom said, uh, no. Before? Okay, before, before I was born. Um, okay. And then I just started asking this question, and I asked her the question I asked my dad. And, and I didn't, look, I didn't go into this thinking I'm having some momentous conversation with my mom. I, 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 and I also just sort of expected her to you dismiss curious. it. I was yeah. curious. I was yeah. just asking family yeah. history questions about why my parents split up, you yeah. know, things I didn't know the answers to. Um, and suddenly I found myself in this, you know, going down the sinkhole of, of my parents' past, and... I could see how uncomfortable the question made my mom. And she said, uh, so I started saying, well, who, Mom, who, who's my dad? And she said, you know, why do you need to know that? I said, Mom, what, what, what do you mean, why do I need to know my Who is my father? Um, well, Stephen's your father. He's, he's the man who raised you. Why do you need anything more than that? 
and I, and I, um, I, I just started having enough of this, and I just, I just was relentless um, uh, and demanded to know who, who, who it was. She said, I don't know. I said, okay, who do you think it is? Um, and she said, she said, Jason. Uh, and, you know, it, look, it's a, it's a long, this happened uh, in 2006, uh, which is a long time ago, but it's also recent enough that I can still remember very well. The biggest gut punch you can imagine. Yeah. And I, you know, your parents are your parents. I mean, I, you know, I drew a lot of, as we've talked about, I drew a lot of my identity from my dad's side about wanting to be a speechwriter um, from that side, I'm very close to my dad and his parents and that whole side of the family. And I remember looking down at my legs, my hands, and feeling like I was inhabiting a stranger's body. I mean, there would be many hours over the years to come that I'd look in the mirror and feel like I didn't even recognize myself uh, because I am, I'm a spitting image of my biological father, um, which, again, in retrospect, how do you not put these pieces together? But denial is a powerful thing, it turns out. Um, but in that moment, uh, when my mother told me, I just... You know, it took me some time to, to uh, take it in. I was furious, though, with her, and I stopped speaking to her. I moved out of the apartment. I moved in with my girlfriend, and uh, it, it contributed to um, a psychological episode with her where she called me up and kind of asked me to come over, uh, and I could tell something was wrong. I, didn't, I was still angry. We were barely talking, but I could tell something was going on with her, and so I went over to the house. And I found her. Um, I found her in a state that, I mean, st- even now it's very upsetting to think about. Um, but I, she was basically unresponsive. I mean, rocking in a chair. I was talking to her. She was not even engaging with me. Her eyes kind of flitting about, um, and I was terrified because I I knew about her suicide attempt before I was born, but I'd never seen anything like this. I mean, I'd seen her in her room, lock, you know, shutting herself away. I'd seen her in various moods but I'd never seen anything like this. And I called her brother who lived outside Philly and he said, don't leave her side, don't leave her side. And he immediately drove down, um, drove up to New York and we took her to a psychiatric emergency room. And she, she slowly started to kind of stabilize and come back. And, you know, it was months later, um, uh, she was pleading with me to go see a therapist with her to repair our relationship because we still weren't speaking. We spoke earlier about this odd role that kids sometimes are placed in that you were of being both parent and child. So the loss of you must have been an extraordinary blow to her, this feeling that you were now estranged because you knew the truth. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And, and you know, that's part of why I felt complicit. I felt like I created, I'd, I'd caused this. So I felt an overwhelming sense of guilt along with an overwhelming sense of anger about the, what she told me um, and all of these things. And, um, and so I still wasn't really... Uh, probably guilt about being angry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, and, uh, but I, and so she, she sort of pleaded with me to go see a therapist with her, and so I did, even though I didn't really want to, but I, I knew it was important for her safety. Uh, and it was actually walking out of a, that therapist's office one day that Favs called me up uh, uh, and said, do you want to move to Chicago um, while we were walking out of a therapist's office? And so that call was well-timed because I had never wanted to do anything more than join that campaign. Uh, and also, I'd never wanted to be in New York City less. And, I, um, and so it was a, uh, in some ways, convenient timing for me to just sort of get myself out of New York um, at a very difficult How'd time. How did she handle that? Uh, she, 
she was supportive. Uh, she knew that it was something I wanted to do. How does she feel, by the way, now that this book is published? I mean, it has to be really painful for her to have all of this in the sort of public domain. How have you guys, I mean, how's your relationship now? Uh, it's good. Thanks for asking. I mean, it's good now. She is, um, you know, her reactions have been, have run a spectrum from I'm proud of you for writing it, which I thought was very gracious of her to say, to, uh, you know, a very long conversation where she detailed some of the things she wasn't crazy about in the book. But her mental health has been stable. It's, and I should also say she has supported me in writing it. So as painful as the book is and as much as it reveals about her, um, she never asked me not to write it. She knew it was, and I think now even more so, having read it, knows how important it is to my kind of being able to move forward. Obviously a catharsis for you. I know from my own experience writing a memoir, you have to confront things in a way, if you're going to write honestly, that is deeply disturbing, uncomfortable, upsetting, but at the end of it, also very cathartic. Yes, and and this a lot of this was very difficult. Um, just on that point, I mean, I I would sometimes have to take breaks from write from writing for hours or days at a time because writing about this, some of the stuff was so upsetting. The, the some of the stuff about my mother's mental health issues, some of the the aspects of our relationship, you know, and some of the details that emerged because uh, as I started to try and understand what had happened, I ultimately reached out to my biological father. Um, and some of what he shared with me uh, was was hard for me to wrap my head around. You know, I mean, I, well, his attitude was shocking to say the least. I mean, it's a podcast; I can say it. He comes across as kind of an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, to quote uh, my wife, as I do in the book, uh, after one of our, our lunches with him, we walked out. Uh, I said, "What did you think?" And she just said, "Sociopath." Yeah. Um, I mean, I. I I mean, first of all, she was a graduate student when they had this affair. In today, today we would recognize this as an incredible abuse of authority uh, in the Me Too category. He said to me that he, my biological father, said to me that he was attracted to my mother because he was attracted to broken women. Um, and bear in mind, their affair began a couple of years after my mom was hospitalized for a suicide attempt. Uh, he was, you know, 15 years or so older, established in a profession that she was trying to enter, her professor, a professor, um, d- grossly inappropriate. He, he shared things with me over the course of these lunches where I initially reached out after many years. Uh, I, I, I hadn't wanted to reach out because the whole thing made it, made it seem real to actually confront him about it. But I decided I wanted a paternity test, number one, to just figure out if I'm going through all this for not. And he took one. We took one and it came back 99.9% positive. And uh, and I also and then I sort of wanted to figure out what I thought of him in this new context. Um, and he shared with me in one of these lunches that um, you know he said you were wanted. I said wanted. What do you mean wanted? He said you were planned pregnancy. And bear bear in mind he was married at the time and had a family had had a couple kids. My mom was married to my dad. I go back to my mom. I say um, Jason said I was uh, wanted. Why did you want to have me? My mom says, well, I wouldn't say it was my idea. Okay. Um, Interesting piece of information. So I go back to Jason and I say, why? Why why did you want to have me? And he said, 
Well, the idea of having a secret baby appealed to my sense of mystery and the erotic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, ax, I even now I don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to wrap my head around a statement like that. But this is when we when we talk about writing about difficult family issues or your past and how tough it can be. Writing about all this helped me make sense, at least as much sense of it as I'm able to make, because these sort these pieces of information were were so difficult for me to process um, that it was really only writing about it and trying to put some order and sequence that made it make any sense at all. And you know, it, it doesn't. It, some of it still doesn't totally. I still can't yeah. totally wrap my head around. Um, uh, I, I had hoped when I began this whole process that by going in search of the truth, it would be liberating. And ultimately it has been, but there were many moments where I felt like, uh, such as after that conversation with, with Jason, where I felt that, uh, you know, this quest for the truth had actually mired me in this ethical moral swamp that I, I just couldn't even get out. Well, of. the other aspect that you write so movingly about is your fears about what it would mean for your relationship with your dad, the man who raised you, the man who yeah. was such a close influence yeah. in, in your life, a role model in many ways. He did not know. He did not know. This whole time, he did not know. In that first conversation with my mom, I said, who knows about this? Does dad know? And she said, God, no, it would break his heart. I said, did, you know, Bubby and Zeta know? Did grandma and pa, you know, anybody? No. Does, uh... Um, I said in that conversation, does Jason know? She said yes, which would come back later, um, and I would understand more about that. Um, but, yeah, it would, it would be about a decade before I would go and talk to my dad about it. And ten I was, years. Ten years. And I was, you know, what I was terrified of was I was not terrified that he would abandon me and walk away. I knew he loved me. That's not what I was afraid of. I was afraid that he would look at me just a little differently, um, that the— tone of his voice would change just like that he and, and nobody would know this except the two of us um, but that he would be able to set that that I would I would sense that he somehow didn't see me as his son anymore and and that just the thought of it just broke my heart and and so that's why I mean look I talked to him when we were in Chicago I would talk frequently by phone I spent he you know we'd come to visit I went back for birthdays uh, of his and and we spent all this time together and I just Every one of those conversations, every one of those visits, I felt like I'm just doing this dance, trying to put on a performance and not let on that I'm, I'm holding on to this insane secret. Um, you write really vividly about the visit when you finally went yeah. and spoke to your, your yeah. father about this and revealed the truth. I called him up and I said, I want to come talk to you. And he said, well, what is it? Uh, and I said, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get into it on the phone. Uh and so I took the train to see him, and uh, he picked me up. We went back to his house, and already I was getting choked up, and he was getting kind of nervous. And we sat down, and I just kind of launched into it. I said, do you remember when uh, my uncle and I had to take Mom to the psychiatric ER all those years ago? He said, yes. I said, well, what I didn't tell you was the reason that we had to do that was because I basically stopped speaking to her. And the reason I stopped speaking to her and I'm, I'm bawling at this point. I mean, I can barely get these words out. Um, the reason I stopped speaking to her is because she told me that I'm Jason Black's biological son. And I, these, these are words that I was terrified for about a decade to tell him. And, and as I'm saying this, through the tears, I hear him say, uh-huh, uh-huh, I know, I know. And 
I, I can't even believe it, you know. Uh, you, you know, you know? And he said, yes, Adam, he said, I've always known it was possible, uh, but I decided a long time ago that it doesn't matter one way or another, you're my son and you always will be. Uh, and it was... Yeah, I was bawling when I read that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I even now get choked up thinking about it. And he, um, I went and gave him the biggest hug I've ever given anybody. And then, and then he said, is that all? Is that all you wanted to talk to me about? <laughs> Knew how to lighten the mood. Um, but then, then we started talking openly about it. And, and he had his doubts over the years. He'd confided those doubts in, in, his, um, in uh, his, his wife, my stepmother. Um, uh, he had at one point during a legal dispute after my parents divorced, considered a paternity test, which he had not proceeded on. Um, you know, in that initial conversation with my dad where he'd brushed aside, uh, where he, when he told me about the affair, um, uh, with Jason and, um, brushed aside my doubts that I was his son. Uh, I, I'd asked him why. And he had said, well, I remember the night of conception, which I thought was sort of an odd uh, response, but okay. Um, but I learned many, you know, a- after we started talking about this openly, I understood what he meant. We talked about that because my parents no longer had a physical relationship at that time in their marriage, except once during the summer of 1980, mm. which we, I now think was an act of misdirection on the part of Jason and my mother. Mm. Um, and so we started reconstructing mm. some yeah. of these, some of these events. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's extraordinary. I, I, I had this sort of shadow biography, which came to light 10 years or plus ago, and I've now been piece, piece much of together. But ultimately, the lesson that I've taken away from this whole thing is that family is built on love, not biology. And yeah. I've just been carried by the love of the Frankel and Minow family and many uh, and, and some well, members of my mom's family. And let's talk about your own family. You're married to uh, Stephanie Saki. She's the sister of a dear friend of mine, Jen Saki, who many people know from her public work. You were dating as you were working through this period, and you broke the relationship off. Why did you do that? Well, Steph and I met um, in early 2009, right when we won, um, and met through Jen, thanks to Jen mm-hmm. and some of the speechwriters. And the the beginning of our relationship uh, was uh, difficult because that that was a, a period when I was, um, uh, you know, trying not to deal with some of this stuff, but it was kind of creeping up, uh, and. We started dating. I broke up with her. I immediately uh, regretted it and, and started not understanding why I'd broken up with her, going through all these sort of emotions, and um, pleaded with her to get back together with me. And in the course of pleading with her to get back together with me, I shared some of what I'd been going through that I hadn't shared before about all this sort of family background. And she encouraged me to see a therapist and start actually dealing with it. And I did. And that was really when I, when I started trying to face some of this stuff. And she has been just an extraordinary rock source of support throughout all of this. I mean, I should say, this, I, I carried a lot of this. She carried a lot of it with me. And, and as the wreckage spilled over in my, our family, because my mother's family for many, many years, um, you know, uh, did not understand anything about my relationship with my mother and thought I was being Felt a bad you were son. Just callously thought I was callously her mistreating her, you know, um, thought I was told me I was a bad son. Even my Zeta said that I was not being a good enough son to my mother. Um, you know, many of them didn't know this truth uh, about our relationship and why things had, had frayed because 
I was trying to protect these relationships. We were trying to protect these relationships. But in any event, the family relationships were deeply strained. And um, Steph bore some of the brunt of that as well. But she, uh, she has just been an extraordinary, she's a, one of the heroes of the book and one of the heroes of, of this, my life in this respect. Um, and we have built uh, an extraordinary family together. We have two little kids. And you know, part of the reason I wrote the book, part of the reason I'm trying to work through all this stuff, frankly, is for us and uh, for myself, for my marriage, for Steph, for our kids and our family, because, you know, I'm doing my best to try and make sure that the trauma does not pass to another generation. I may not succeed totally, um, but a a big part of this for me is, is stopping that trauma with me and making sure that the pain that, as I see it, has reverberated from my grandparents' experience in the Holocaust to my mother and a lot of her struggles to this crazy family situation that I've had to experience, um, that the wreckage of that, we do a, a, as good a job as possible mitigating our, uh, that from ha- You, you mentioned before we started recording that you've uh, been moved by the experiences you've had on your book tour, and what you've discovered is that there are a lot of people who have experienced trauma who identify with your struggle more than you ever imagined. Well, in a in, in number of different ways. So there's an explosion of family disclosures with 23andMe and Ancestry.com. People are finding yes. these disclosures all over the place. Um, and there are not a lot of resources for people who are finding these disclosures. And so people are going through these personal crises uh, and emotions and psychological journeys and, and feeling very alone. Um, and so part of what I hope is the book will show one path through some of this. I should also say, look, Everybody has trauma in their life or their family's life somewhere. In my family, it's Holocaust trauma and, and mental health. Um, uh, in other families, it can be addiction, abuse, racism. In the book, I write about, uh, I, I interview a professor at Harvard Medical School who writes about post-traumatic slavery syndrome. Uh, people have, have spoken about the soul wound in Native American communities, the legacy of the genocide and mm-hmm. the impact that it has had on raft of social and economic challenges. And so uh, my hope is that... Um, People can read the book uh, and find a path forward in that respect, too, that by sort of situating our own experiences, our family's experiences in this sort of broader intergenerational landscape, it doesn't make make the trauma go away, but I hope it helps us understand it, maybe. And at least in my case, it's helped me move forward, and I hope it does that for other people, too. I shouldn't let you go without... Uh, asking, you moved on professionally. You worked for PepsiCo. You, uh, you you were involved in education reform. What are you doing now? And do you expect that you'll be involved again in campaigns and government? Do you still have that fire? I do have that fire. Um, I right now I'm a senior advisor at Emerson Collective, the social change organization founded by Lorraine Powell Jobs. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm also a senior advisor at Fenway Strategies, the communications firm founded by our friends John Favreau and Tommy Vitor. But yes, look, uh, we are. This is a dangerous and crucial moment for our country. Uh, and like you, like so many of us, I'm deeply alarmed and taking a step back, democracies don't have a great track record in history. And I think none of us should take our own democracy for granted and just assume that we'll get through this okay, because we might not. And you've written so lovingly about the institutions of democracy. I'm sure watching them get sundered and tested as they are today is disturbing. It's it's profoundly disturbing. And, um, you know, it fires me up 
Um, you know, because so to, to answer your question, yes, uh, I, I very much hope that in some way or another I can contribute. I think everybody, this is a this is a time when anyone who um, you know loves this country um, and believes in the promise, at least, of American democracy, should try and find some way of stabilizing things and, and getting our country back on track. Well, as it happens, uh, you know, all the presidential candidates in their downtime are big listeners of the Axe Files. So have, I'm sure having heard you say that, your phone will be ringing as soon as we uh, make this podcast available. Uh, the, the book is The Survivors, A Story of War, Inheritance, and Healing. It is riveting. I recommend it to everyone. And Adam, it's always great to see you. Thank you. I'll see you too. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.